Welcome to BIV Today, the daily business podcast from the Business in Vancouver newspaper and from BIV.com. I'm Haley Wooden. Today on the show, Canada's top corporate knights will take a look at the best corporate citizens in Canada and where they get their revenue. Plus, it's National Business Etiquette Week. Margaret Page, a business etiquette coach, will join me to walk me through some of the do's and don'ts when it comes to business manners. We're accepting nominations for a number of awards here at BIV. This includes our BC CEO Awards, Influential Women in Business, and our signature 40 Under 40 Awards program. You can also nominate Chief Technology and Innovation Officers for our inaugural BC CTO Awards. Applications are now open. Visit BIV.com events for details. Corporate Nights has this week released its list of the best 50 corporate citizens in Canada. They're selected from a pool of 242 companies with revenues above $1 billion, and BC has nine companies on the list. Joining me now with more insights into these rankings is Toby Heaps, CEO at Corporate Nights, joining me on the line today from Toronto. Toby, thanks so much for coming on. Oh, thanks for having me. So tell me, how do you tabulate good corporate citizenship? So we, we look at uh, 21 different key performance indicators, and we only look at uh, information that's uh, put out in the public domain because we want to have a confidence in it. And it's really, there's 21, up to 21 indicators, but it's really one indicator that we place the most weight on. Uh, half the weight of what determines a corporate citizen is the percent of revenues that a company is earning that comes from products or services that have a beneficial impact on society or the environment. So we, we call that clean revenue or revenue linked to sustainable solutions. Okay. And how do you go about calculating clean revenue when you're analyzing companies in a wide range of industries from apparel to mining? So that's, that's, a, that's a good question. We, we broke down the industries into 97 different industry groups. And then for each industry group, we've gone in and, um, and come up with a fairly refined definition that can be ver- that's verifiable for clean revenue. So if we're talking about forestry, for example, we're looking for um, uh, revenue that's linked to um, recycled fiber or um, sustainably uh, certified fiber to the, the FSC or, or the PEFC standard. So we go right down to that sort of rigorous level of detail of which standards qualify and what levels uh, it qualifies. For real estate, we, we're looking at uh, the variety of standards we recognize, but within the lead uh, structure has to be lead gold or better, which is a sort of a, a rating framework for how green uh, real estate property is. For telecommunications, uh, uh, places like TELUS, um, uh, other information communication technology firms, we see them kind of as, as modern electricity providers, but really they're through, through data. So we look at the percent of electricity consumption they have that is sourced from renewable sources that determines the uh, clean revenue score. For power utilities, it's pretty straightforward. You know, percent of, uh, of generation revenue that uh, transmission that comes from uh, uh, derived from renewable sources. So BC Hydro would, would does quite well there as a primarily a green green power company. We mm-hmm. do include large hydro. We, we don't count nuclear in that definition. For um, a university, we're looking at what portion of their uh, co- coursework uh, and programs uh, has a sustainable development goals theme embedded in a significant uh, manner and, um, and use that to um, uh, assess the clean revenue score. For banks or financial services, we're looking at what portion of loans are tied to the social environmental impact or um, to our clean um, clean economy definition, which is available at, at corporate nights.com. 
So how clean are the best 50 corporate citizens in Canada compared to the rest of corporate Canada? Well, what's, what's interesting is there's, there's, um, there's two sort of fallacies around this well, clean revenue, sustainable solution revenue. The first one is it's really tiny and it's just kind of like your solar panel firms and things like that. The second one is it's, it's mainly just green power. And I think what's really interesting with the best 50 corporate citizens is you know, we're looking at the best 50 large companies in Canada out of a pile of 242. Um, there's, a, there's a whole range of revenues, and, and these revenues total in the tens of billions of dollars, whether it's Bombardier's public transit or Maple Leaf uh, Foods, uh, plant-based uh, burgers, uh, which they now have large stakes in the, in the U.S. market share, or um, BC Hydro's Green Power, um, or HSBC Canada, or Van, Van, Van City's substantial, um, uh, well, in the case of Van City, at least substantial exposures to um, uh, in, impact loans um, and, uh, and financial service products that are linked to the clean economy. So I think what's interesting is it's, it's way bigger than the green power um, niche that people think of. Uh, the the uh, the clean economy um, is is embodied by the uh, the best fifty uh, leaders, and it's way more diverse. Uh, it touches uh, every industry um, in some significant way, from financial services to mining, uh, the critical materials for the low carbon economy, things like uh, copper, which which we need to uh, build out the low carbon economy, mining those those uh, minerals in a in a responsible way. So um, it's it's interesting to see how how diverse it is, and it's really surprising for some people to see how diverse it is, and within the best fifty. The uh, best 50 companies that derive, 34 of the companies derive more than 10% of their revenues from uh, uh, clean sources. And those companies are growing at a faster clip than the um, the rest of the large companies in Canada, about 17% faster uh, per year on a compound annual growth rate over the past three years. So it's interesting to see the solutions are, are growing faster than the, um, the, the problem. Wow. Are you able to draw a correlation between sort of clean revenues or maybe more generally good corporate citizens? good corporate citizenship and sort of financial gain? Yeah. So, I mean, just on the revenue side, the companies, uh, good corporate citizens with high clean revenues have higher revenue growth. So um, that's interesting. And then on a financial performance perspective, we do the same exercise with the same methodology at a, at a global level where we, where we pluck out the, the 100 best uh, companies globally, most sustainable uh, companies globally out of a larger universe of 6,000 companies. And those we've been tracking the stock um, market performance of those 100 companies uh, for it's, it's revised every year and updated every year for 14 years since 2005 against this global uh, peer group of uh, large companies. And it's interesting to note that it has uh, has sustained a performance um, and uh, over the 14 year period uh, uh, over over 1.2 percent annualized outperformance and uh, a relatively lower volatility with lower risk. So. Um, Suggesting that the sort of the most sustainable large corporations in the world are um, are capturing um, growth opportunities in a in a more efficient way than the, your average large corporation, and um, and also that they um, are having um, uh, are less risky because their uh, and their stock price is reflecting that with lower volatility. So uh, we that's just a correlation, but the fact that it's, the relationship is held true for 14 years going on is um, is pretty interesting. That's it's one of the clearer tests of you know does sustainability pay. The Global 100 is a 14-year live test um, calculated by a, a German index company, Solactive, uh, with all the data there publicly available for people to see. So it's interesting to see that uh, the hypothesis that sustainability might not underperform um, when tested in this case has shown that the 100 most sustainable companies globally have um, uh, outperformed their peer group over, mm. 14, over 14 years. Wow. 
Do these companies embed values around clean revenue, around sustainability into their mandate? Are they deeply ingrained in these cultures and maybe that's why they're able to succeed or is that not always the case? I think, you know, it's a combination. Usually um, the leadership at the top is really critical. Um, the, and um, we've noticed with the so a lot of leaders, you know, whether it's Tamara Vermin at Advanced City or Gord Hicks at BGIS or Don Lindsay at Tech Resources, a lot of these companies have leaders that um, uh, are um, have the have the courage of their convictions and have a lot of respect and credibility with the organization and, and in the broader industry in many cases and are able to take a longer term perspective and um, and pursue um, these objectives that are tied to long term performance but sometimes don't always pay off in the short term sometimes increasingly um, they they do one thing we did note though is the companies on the best fifty about half of them fifty two percent link the um, executive pay to a sustainability target, whether it's safety or growth of clean revenue or um, or reduction in carbon um, emissions, um, whereas uh, less than 20% just uh, uh, in, in the broader universe of large companies link the executive pay to sustainability targets. So the best 50 companies, you know, almost half half of the executives are getting having their bonuses um, calculated in, in part due to um, how well they do in hitting their sustainability targets. So I think from a government mandate perspective, um, how people get paid is really important to look at, and I think there's going to be a fair amount of elaboration there. And one of the trends we're seeing is more and more companies are starting to link executive pay to growth in the clean revenue or sustainable revenue, um, uh, sustainable solution revenue space, which is, um, I think, a, a really healthy thing for um, well, for for the financial stakeholders in the companies, but also for the planet. Mm-hmm. On the topic of sort of pay and financial reward, you also note that the multiple, if you look at a CEO's salary, is not as high among these best 50 companies than it would be in the rest of corporate Canada if you're comparing the wage of a, an average worker to that of the CEO. I thought that was very interesting, too, how that gap's a little bit smaller. It's still significant, but a little bit smaller on this list. Yeah, yeah. The the average best fifty company CEO is making about sixty times more than the um, the their average employee, and it's it's a little over eighty for the um, average large company uh, CEO. So, uh, what we did notice is the best fifty companies they, they do pay their workers quite well, um, on average about a hundred thousand dollars a year, which is uh, uh, substantially higher than the Canadian um, individual median income of thirty five thousand uh, dollars a year. So, um, pretty good salaries working at these these large uh, uh, leading corporate citizens. And there are some companies that, um, you know, that 60 to 1 ratio was for the best 50 cohort, but companies like um, Van City, um, the ratio between the CEO to average worker pay there is just 10 to 1. And you can go and look at the big big five banks and you'll find uh, substantial higher ratios. Uh, or BC, BC Hydro, um, also interesting to look at BC Hydro, the ratio of um, the, the uh, CEO of BC Hydro to the average worker is 6 to 1. And, and um, certainly you can look at other utilities, including provincially owned ones that have substantially higher um, ratios. And it's interesting that those those utilities have uh, often had more scandals and more problems and um, some governance concerns as well. Mm-hmm. I mentioned at the top, we have nine BC companies that made the best 50 list. What can you tell me about how BC's representation on the list has changed year over year? Um, well, I think BC, I mean, a lot of these companies are perennials. You know, Van City has been ranked number one uh, corporate citizen. Um, in our in previous rankings, uh, tech resources is uh, is a print, it's globally is, is sort of singled out as the um, the best scoring company on from the mining sector on sustainability measures globally. Mountain Equipment Co-op, I don't think it will come as a surprise to, to most people. Uh, it's also ranked as one of the number one corporate citizens in the past. So 
I guess what's interesting is the 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 makeup. I mean, BC is uh, a significant province, but nine is slightly overweight. But also um, the number of companies from BC that have uh, ranked at the top of their industry um, globally or or uh, in Canada. So globally, Tech Resources ranks uh, number one out of 205 mining companies globally that we look at. And then Mount Equipment Co-op ranks number one out of 79 uh, apparel and accessories retail companies we look at. So I think that's that's pretty interesting and, and interesting that um, Mount Equipment Co-op and Ben City have both uh, come in number one in previous years. And Catalyst Paper has been a perennial. Um, um, most, most years we've done the best 50 corporate citizens ranking and have been an early sort of adopter of um, advanced certification and, um, and use of uh, biomass and line of sight uh, carbon offsetting. So, you know, TELUS uh, that has, has also um, scored well globally among its peers. It's number five out of 154. So I, I think that's interesting. I mean, it's not surprising. Uh, Quebec is probably doing the best on a per-province basis relative to population and GDP. And then BC would be um, would be number two. And I think that's, um, to some extent, a, a function of uh, culture um, and also the um, the mix of the alternative governance structures. Because you look at the BC um, constituents on this year's best 50 and you have uh, you have a co-op, you have a couple of cooperatives, um, you have a crown corp, uh, you have a university, and so um, you know uh, almost half of them are uh, coming from alternative governance structures that place a higher value on other stakeholder values than just um, just uh, profit. Um, so I think that 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 partially explains it. Mm-hmm. The top corporate citizen on this year's list, of course, is the cooperators. Uh, tell me why they earned that top spot, and maybe what other companies can learn from them as an example. Sure. So um, first thing about the cooperators is some of the, the coolest things it, it does. We, we can't measure objectively with our current methodology in terms of uh, some of the leading edge work that's done to help to shape federal government policy and to launch the uh, federal government's expert panel on sustainable finance. And a lot of the work that's done around to um, getting um, uh, Canada's flood readiness to, to get it up to par with the increasing number of floods that we're going to have. So we can't actually calibrate and objectively measure that. So that kind of stuff doesn't factor into it. But what we do, what we do measure, and where cooperators did do quite well, um, was on the clean revenue side. So they have uh, about 11% of their insurance premiums now. Um, so it's an insurance, mostly an insurance company, are linked to uh, sustainability-themed products, uh, with uh, generally with climate themes. And 13% of their institutional assets they manage uh, in total. They own an asset management company that manages over 40 billion, but they have their own institutional assets as an insurance company, and over a billion dollars uh, representing. 13% of their um, institutional assets are invested in something called impact investments. Those are investments with clear environmental or social benefits um, that uh, are verifiable and measurable. And that, that is a, a real um, sort of a leading ratio among its, um, its global peers. So it, it, it ranks number one out of its whole basket of global peers um, overall. And on the, the clean revenue metric, it, um, it, it excels as well. Its employee turnover, maybe not surprisingly, is significantly lower than the average insurance company. I believe it have a retention rate of about 94% over the past two years versus something in the neighborhood of 88% for their industry peers, according to our data. And that's backed up by the conference board data as well. So the cooperative workers are, are more likely to stay. And that's a metric that we also, um, uh, for their sector, um, has, a, has, a, has a, um, a, a meaningful weight. And, um, and you know, they have a healthy pension fund for their workers. Uh, I think the main message to take away from the best safety is Focus on the growth markets that are solving uh, where, where there are solutions for the world and, um, and pay your workers well um, and, and make sure your uh, executives um, are aligned from a compensation perspective with, um, with, uh, with, the, uh, with both of those elements. 
Um, and I think uh, I think if if a company does that, um, focuses on the solutions, pays its workers well, and and incentivizes, uh, has governance structures that are supportive of that on the compensation side, that is um, goes a long way to um, to getting to leadership. Well said, Toby. Thanks so much for coming on the show. Thank you. That's Toby Heap, CEO at Corporate Knights. It happens to be National Business Etiquette Week, and I'm joined today in studio by Margaret Page, business etiquette coach here in the Lower Mainland to talk about this further. Good to have you on. Thanks for coming in. I'm delighted to be here today. I think we're going to spend a lot of time talking about good etiquette, but uh, I do want to start with some of the faux pas. In your line of work, what are some of the most common bad etiquette habits that we have in business? Sure. So, of course, one bad habit is our mobile phones, yes. you know, people using their phones at inappropriate places and making others feel uncomfortable because essentially if you're using it, you're saying, yeah, you're not the most important thing right now. And uh, it, it makes people uncomfortable. They don't know what to do, where to look, what to do. So that's a serious faux pas. It's an interesting sort of behavioral psychology lesson. If you see one person on their phone, it almost gives permission to others. Yeah. And you don't want to be the only person not on your phone. So it's sort of a, a self-perpetuating issue. Yes. And I remember one time being in downtown Vancouver, going down the elevator and two coffee shops, one on either side and looking out everyone was on their mobile phone. No one was talking and yet all the tables were full. <laughs> so interesting. Yeah. And sometimes you just, with the initial thought, you're going to look up the time of, of your next meeting or something like that. And before you know it, 10 minutes has gone by and the other person also <laughs> has gotten wrapped up in whatever email or whatever text message. So it's a real problem stay, having that awareness and uh, staying present with the conversation that you're in. And this is obviously a way that etiquette has evolved over the years. Going back 20 years, this really would not have been a problem. Yes, yes. We were talking about the blurring lines between good leadership, manners, and customer service. Those areas seem to be folding over each other in the last uh, five to 10 years. So what's the strategy then for successfully balancing all of those areas? Well, slowing down, being fully aware and understanding to in order for you to grow in your career or your leadership, you really need to have more presence and stay tuned to others around you. The future is all about building relationships, and it has been for a number of years. It's about relationships. It's about the customer experience. And so in order to do that, you have to be fully present. But the interesting thing is you're more productive then, too, because there's so many things that we all have to do nowadays. But if you slow it down and do that thing well, then you can go on to the next and you feel capable of it because you're not in that overwhelm all the time. And you're not dividing your time between a million different things. That's right. That's right. I'm curious, though, it seems like we have such a culture of being accessible at any point. And in fact, that's possible through technology. Yeah. Is it purely a bad habit to put the phone down or to, sorry, to use your phone in a conversation when you're distracted? Or could you also say, well, that's part of my job as a CEO, I need to be accessible as a CEO, I can't put the phone down. How do you sort of balance accessibility and managing everything going on with purely being in the moment? 
Yeah, I think CEOs really have to schedule their time that they use their phone. So when you're in meetings time, you have to be fully present with those in the room. And if you do need to get information, ask someone in the room to get that information for you. But you have to schedule your time and get on your phone during those times and, and block those those time periods off. You will have greater um, opportunities to build relationships and it'll serve you well. When we think of business etiquette, I think what might come to mind is how you behave in face-to-face situations. Are there protocols for how to behave in an appropriate manner on email, on social media, on technology? Yes. <laughs> short all answer. those all those areas. And of course, as you mentioned earlier, we all we call it the PMOC, their preferred method of communication. Mm. So what channel are you operating on with this person? And we really need to step into the other person's model of the world. So if they choose instant message, if they communicate through LinkedIn, WhatsApp, um, WeChat, whatever it is, you have to be prepared to be flexible. It used to be, you know, I only like to make phone calls, so I'm, I'm a phone call making <laughs> person, or I only like email. No more. You know, you have to be flexible in all channels and be willing to meet people in that, in that model. But also, it's to keep the dialogue and the thread going. So if you're hopping, oh, I instant message here, but then I'll send an email here to that person and the the thread of the conversation or the project or whatever really gets lost. So it's really about knowing what channel you're going to use and then using it consistently and you'll have better communication. Mm-hmm. What would you say are some of the areas that we tend to overlook but are really important when it comes to etiquette and therefore really important when it comes to building successful relationships? Sure. So often, you know, when we go to a banquet or something like that is understanding that um, most of the people at the room are feeling uncomfortable about introducing themselves too. So you have to be bold and brave and stand up and go around and make those introductions. And the introductions always stand up when you're shaking hands with people. It's not about remaining seated. And particularly in the business world, it's gender neutral. Outside in the social arena, it's somewhat different. You know, if there's elderly people or um, certainly old-fashioned mode was that women could could stay seated and women got to choose if you if you were willing to shake hands with them or not but in the market in the in the business world it's gender neutral so rise and shake hands and look people in the eye and um, but a lot of I can't tell you how many clients have come to me because they're uncomfortable about networking what do I say what do I you know? People are worried uh, about that. They have great uh, technical skills, but those networking skills, and really that's how you elevate your career, is having the ability to communicate effortlessly with others. Um, Exactly. And there's a lot of research now that shows firms really put a lot of value on the soft skills. They want critical thinkers. They want communicators. They want networkers. Absolutely. And how many, uh, the, the studies about engagement with staff, people, staff aren't engaged. And, and often it's because the CEOs have been so busy doing whatever it is, they don't even know their employees' names, how to pronounce them correctly. When you walk in in the morning, you might be a persona non grata. So it's really about, you know, them knowing people's names, how to pronounce it properly and building those relationships. 
That's an interesting point that business etiquette applies just as much internally within a firm as it does if you're going out representing your firm in the world. Absolutely. Yes. Yeah. One of the other challenges that we often see in the business world is being a little too casual. For instance, lunch at the at your desk mm-hmm. or and it creates uh, smells and uncomfortableness and mess on the paperwork and or cafeterias or break rooms, you know, that was my food. Uh, various things like that that <laughs> cause problems in the workplace as well. All about good manners and and uh, identifying uh, what's yours and where the right place to have that item is. Another area where perhaps people can get a little too casual would be attire, a sensitive subject at times. But I'm, I'm really curious because here in the West Coast, we have West Coast casual. If you're on Bay Street, you're not seeing that same level of attire. How do you merge two worlds if you have someone who's out here meeting with representatives who maybe dress entirely different? Yes, you have to be flexible. Flexibility is the name of the game everywhere, isn't it? (laughs) So if you're on the East Coast, you have to, when in Rome, do as the Romans do. You have to be able to step into that world and have that wardrobe that you feel comfortable and people feel comfortable with you. You know, they have to be able to see you in that particular position as well. If they can't picture you having that CEO job or having that corner office, then that affects your credibility and um, how how much you can accomplish. So, and they have to be flexible when the East Coast come, come out West <laughs> and meet us in our model of the world. I know on the um, East Coast, it, it's all about shaking hands, making the eye contact, but then it's quick, quick, let's, let's get down to, to the job or the task. And we're a little bit um, more about building relationships. But even sometimes here, there's certain businesses that it's about hugging. And in mm. the East, you no, we're not going to hug. This is a, <laughs> but or, you know, in some areas too, the hand bump has really started to evolve mm. that uh, people are focused more on the on the hand bump. How the hand bump, though, it's not lighting up the brain patterns uh, like a handshake will. When you're shaking hands, it lights up certain areas of the brain that we know there's a connection being built. Mm. And whereas the hand bump doesn't have that same impact, but good for germs. (laughs) (laughs) That's interesting, though. So there's a bit of a science behind why we shake hands or why it's good to shake hands. Absolutely. Yes. And that's why the the trend or the habit of doing that has lasted thousands of years. (laughs) (laughs) When it comes to a culture within a company or a sector, I'll pick on technology, for example, which here on the West Coast can seem very laid back. You know, you have the traditional jeans, t-shirt, hoodie. You were saying just before we hit the air, you were back from Silicon Valley, sort of the epitome of that kind of culture. Yes. Would it be fair to say business etiquette in this kind of culture is essentially the code that underlies that? So if you want to meet the proper business etiquette, that means sort of applying yourself to that culture. It doesn't mean showing up in a suit when everyone's really casual. How does that work? Yeah, you you still, there's some foundational things that are just given that you have mm-hmm. to, I mean, you still have to say please, you still have to say thank you, you still have to look people in the eyes, but you can dress the way that industry dress. Having said that, um, you know, I've been in a business in Silicon Valley where they had requested staff run around bare feet and 
they don't like that. <laughs> so, you know, there's those subtle nuances. And often people at the top or in HR, that's an uncomfortable conversation to have. You've recruited people, you've worked hard to get them on team, and you're delighted with the work and the effort. And we're scaling our business, we're growing so rapidly. But we need them to reflect our organization in a more positive way. And so can you work with them? And and often I'll work with individuals. So they're more in line with the brand of the organization. So those things all play. There is lots more lead way than there was in past years, but still there's uh, on either end, there there's limits. <laughs> there are limits. It's good there, to have limits. Yes. Thinking, too, of Silicon Valley, there have been over the past number of years examples of leaders who probably not considered very polite. They're mm-hmm. aloof. They're maybe very brilliant. They're successful in a way, mm-hmm. but not the epitome of business etiquette or good manners, I'd say. What kind of impact do you think that has on society? Do we have enough good role models in business that are both powerful, but they're also polite? That's a great question. (laughs) We do have lots of great role models, but as you said, there are a lot more individuals that are extreme and showing a different way. I guess the question will be in the years to come, will they survive that? Or is it a sensationalism? I'm getting media attention. I'm getting attention because of my loud or disruptive ways. And at some point, we as human beings tend to the pendulum shifts one way totally, and then it totally shifts the other way. There'll be a time that we'll say, yeah, you know, that doesn't appeal. Um, it's it's really about being respectful of each other and courteous and thinking things through. And uh, so we'll see how that shift occurs in the years to come. It gets back to what you said about really placing an emphasis on relationships and building long-term relationships, not just short-term transactions. That's right. And not just short-term because someone's going to put me on Instagram or someone's going to put me on LinkedIn and there's going to be a hundred comments or whatever it is. <laughs> so really something that's going to stand the test of time. And in five years' time, will that still show up on your as something desired or something that's a credit to you? Or will it look like a slur on you five years from now? Tonight, I'm going to our BIVBC CFO Awards and Annual Awards Gala to celebrate Chief Financial Officers. What advice would you give to me or other attendees who maybe listen to this podcast and think, okay, I'm going to observe my behavior? (laughs) What are some things they can implement and look out for? Sure. So when you go to an event like that, first of all, do some research ahead of time so you have something to speak about no matter who you're chatting with. Um, You can either eat or drink. You can't do both at the same time. (laughs) If you hold your beverage glass in your left hand, then your right hand is always free to shake hands and you won't be affected by moisture on your hands. When you're introducing yourself, and hopefully you will go around to those individuals that are on the outskirts, because often they're really interesting people. They're high level of intelligence and very specialized in something, but they're maybe not that as good at networking. So go around, introduce yourself to them. And when you do, I like to use the bond method of introducing myself. So my name is Margaret, Margaret Page. 
So if you say your name twice there, then the other person is more apt to remember it. But also say your name slowly, because what happens is, I, I, I'm sure you can recall an incident when someone shared their phone number in it. Because we know it so well, we give it off so fast, or even our email address, mm-hmm. we forget that the other person is just hearing it for the first time. So slow it down so they actually catch your name and can remember it. And if you have a name that's difficult to pronounce, give them a tool so they can remember it. Don't expect them to think of a way to remember your name if it's more difficult. But if you have created something for yourself, it rhymes with this, or think of this when you think of my name, make it really easy for them to remember you. And if you think of some of those things, that will really help. That's great advice. Thank you. And thanks so much for coming on the show. Delighted to be here anytime. That's Margaret Page, business etiquette coach. And of course, a reminder, it's National Business Etiquette Week, a good time to keep some business etiquette tips in mind. That's it for our show. Thanks for listening to BIV today. You can get notified of new episodes by subscribing to us on iTunes and Stitcher. Listen to episodes as well at BIV.com slash audio, where we have our whole show archive. More business news, of course, is available at BIV.com. I'm Haley Wooden. Thanks again for listening. 